0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Marshall Poe, the editor-in-chief of the network, and today we're talking with Vivian Percy about her terrific book, Saving Jenny, Rescuing Our Youth from America's Opioid and Suicide Epidemic. As I was telling Vivian in the pre-interview, I have some experience with this myself as a recovering alcoholic. I've been sober for many, many years and know a little bit about the recovery process and what what I think we should call the recovery industry, but not as much as Vivian, and Vivian will tell us all about it in the course of our conversation today, but first let me say welcome to the show, Vivian.
1: Oh, thank you so much, Marshall. It's an honor to be here.
0: Great. So could we begin the interview by having you tell us why you wrote this book?
1: Sure, absolutely. Well, the, The book is a story of the long, painful journey of a daughter and a mother, and there haven't been a lot of stories out there about daughters and mothers, a lot about fathers and sons and it's that of my daughter jenny and myself through the drug and opioid addiction and severe depression and suicide epidemic because they're both one and the same and it's a story toward healing and redemption and i i wrote it because i hope that saving jenny encourages us all on a personal level to never give up and never give in and i say that to every parent never give up and never give in never underestimate the vital help and the real power of prayer and a belief in God, and always believe in the cure that is love, and also that we have to demand that our government invest all the money and make all the changes that are needed on a political, social, and economic level, and immediately to vanquish this scourge. Yeah, Yeah, go ahead.
0: I was going to say one of the things you say in the book, which I think bears repeating many, many times, is that drug overdoses kill more people than car accidents in the United States now. Isn't that right?
1: That is absolutely correct. They, they kill more people than car accidents. We lost 72,000 souls to overdose in 2017. 2017 was also the third straight year of a decline in life expectancy in the United States, which has not been seen since the time of the Spanish influenza of 1918. And this was caused by the deaths of those suffering from both addiction and suicide. And we, we know that suicide is the second leading cause of death among young people aged 10 to 24. Um, for instance, we have Dr. Carl Bell, who is a community psychiatrist and clinical professor at the University of Illinois in Chicago, who stated that until recently, he does not remember seeing children younger than 13 who were su- suicidal or severely depressed. He said, I don't know what happened, but now I see it all the time. And recently, there's been a recent report that among preschoolers coming into your, your basic ERs, one-third of them are reporting uh, positive for suicidality. This is, this is an outstanding uh, epidemic, and we're in a societal crisis. And this gets back to the sole reason I wrote Saving Jenny, which was to help find a way to save lives. So that parents and children in society would have almost everything there is to know about the epidemic, including the causes, the cures, the solutions in one book as a resource to hold in their hands. This is what I wished I had had when this all started with me and Jenny in, in 2008, but I didn't have. And I also included pages that help with spiritual guidance and the encouragement of a belief in God and, and acts of personal spiritual healing through compassion, faith, prayer, and forgiveness. And I found that all of these tools were extremely helpful in my ability to help Jenny.
0: Mm-hmm. You mentioned causes, and, and I know it's something that you're interested in talking about, and you have some fascinating things to say about that. And, and, and I should also say that much of what you have to say comes from experience, which is the best teacher. So why, why have we seen this incredible uptick, horrible uptick in uh, really addiction and suicidality?
1: Well, that's a very key question, Marshall. And this all started really back in the 60s when we had a series historically of what I call mental societal fractures. President Eisenhower warned us about the rise of the military-industrial complex. We had the assassinations of five prominent leaders, the Vietnam War, and at the same time, we basically removed God from the culture. And for society, the collective belief in a supreme being of goodness Unites its people with a sense of support and a validation and a reason to live because it encompasses the conviction that good is there and we all can attain it and will will endow us. But without that, without a communal aspiration to something greater than ourselves, a people become defeated, demoralized. And desensitized and ultimately disenfranchised. And this is what happened. The key cause is a starvation of God, love, and hope in the individual. And our children are feeling this acutely. This was caused by our abandonment of our founding belief in the Creator, which was a linchpin that caused a change in reaction of political, social, economic devastations, the most important being the complete destruction of the family. Now, what happened was uh, we have the abandonment of our belief in God which leads to a disregard for human values. Then we have a society which is replaced with inhuman values, which as we see, we have a sense of murderous competition where people are only measured by wealth, power, and prestige. These are the only measures of a person. Um, We have Dr. Mohan DeBarma from the Tripura University of India who stated that we're in a human values crisis and that society can only be maintained by human values, but now we live in a world where a person without money is treated as of no value at all, and the majority of people have become only the means for the rich to get richer. Now, this obsession with materialism led to people feeling they could not devote the time required to engage in civic participation and in the responsibilities of civic participation. So we basically handed our power over to political lobbyists who represent the moneyed interests of those who hire them and not the well-being of us common folk. This led to a culture of corruption of our government across all our institutions and systems, including mental health care and rehab. Because when money is the measure of all things, people will do anything for it. So we had an alteration of our laws, our tax structure, our rules, regulations, international agreements, administrative and and executive codes in a way that did not benefit the majority. What happened was all the money that the middle class used to have so that you could afford stay-at-home parenthood, a father or whoever was the chief breadwinner could basically go to work from nine to five at near minimum wage. And the mother or the father could stay home and take care of the family, lovingly nurture and raise the children, still afford a vacation, the odd weekend off at the beach, and a family savings account, that was all gone. And all of a sudden, the middle class is, is, is depleted. And the middle class declined from 65% in 1970 to 40% in, in, uh, in uh, 10 years ago. Now, with this depletion of the middle class, you have the destruction of the nuclear and extended family and the the ability for parents to stay home. So you no longer have the ability for children to attach to their parents, which is absolutely vital. This is the most vital shield against drug addiction and severe suicidality, that loving parental bond between father and mother and child. This. There is no longer that it takes time to nurture children. This this business of a half hour of quality time is a complete misnomer. It takes time. Yeah, it takes time throughout. Exactly, Marshall. It takes time throughout the course of a day. Those those magical moments. The time it takes to nurture, to redirect, to rear, to encourage, just to delight in, to play with, to teach all sorts of 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 lessons, include including spirituality. This requires a tremendous amount of time and dedication throughout the course of a day. That was gone. And also when the money was taken away from the middle class, all that should have gone towards effective and affordable mental health care, that was depleted. There were no longer community programs that were curative or viable neighborhood churches because the families used to be able to support the church and the church the family. This is gone. Nobody could support Neither could support the other. We should have equal excellence of education for all. The educational system is no longer what it once was. Uh, Higher education seems to be only accessible to the super wealthy, and we need jobs and vocational training. And all of this lack of support led to an economic and personal tribulation with with children feeling abandoned, a starvation of love, a God-shaped hole in the soul terrible loneliness of children left without their parents, really self-hatred and grief, uh, separation from the authentic self. And the only remedies that the culture seemed to be offering people were the fake love substitutes of addictive drugs, hedonism, and rampant consumerism. And so so here we are. And that's how we got there. And in addition, all of this is backed into a culture that saturated by images and messages of violence, horror, ruthlessness, gratuitous sexuality, depredation, and ugliness. And we really live in a world where innocence is no longer protected, where the United States has become one of the top five countries in the world for child prostitution. And this is all part of the same problem. And the way back, we go back up the way we came down and reverse it all.
0: That'd be quite a task. I'm reminded of something that I learned here when I moved to Northampton. They used to have something here. It started in the, I I don't know when it started, but uh, people at AA, the AA meetings that I go to talk about it. And it was called Honor Court. (laughs) <laughs> Can you imagine? Oh, like I haven't heard of that. Honor court. Yeah. And essentially what it was, it was run by a guy It was founded by a guy named Bill, not Bill Wilson. But essentially what honor court did is it took people that were kind of on their way down uh, the, the slippery slope to, uh, let's say, a very bad life through drugs and alcohol and other things. And it, it sort of put them to work in, in a in a public space. And judges would send people to honor court instead of to jail or other places or releasing them because it cost too much to keep them. And uh, honor court would kind of set them right. It was a—I I don't know if it was a kind of public shaming, but it—it it was a sense that the community here in Northampton was taking care of people. It was—it was kind of rough justice in a way. But of course, uh, after about—I don't know when it ended—but you, know, you can't do that kind of thing anymore. They would have people do things like pick up litter off the street and, um, you know, clean uh, public toilets and things like this. And you know, people had gotten in trouble. And of course, all that's impossible now. Um, but this
1: was in lieu of prison.
0: Yeah, it was basically what we would call drug court today. But it uh-huh. was set up it was set up by citizens here, you know, just like it was extrajudicial. It really was, but judges were very much on board with it. But now of course it's so you know this, but it's so extrajudicial that you can't be done anymore. But anyway, I wanted to move on to um Did it work? I did I think it did. They speak people in AA who went through it. Uh, said that it was quite effective. Of course, they ended up in AA, so maybe it wasn't. But I, I'm always reminded of honor court and how I just like the phrase honor court.
1: I like they, it too. Very
0: nice. But yeah. If they, ended,
1: if they ended up in AA, that was probably a good thing. So maybe yeah, well, it was a did. useful yeah. bridge.
0: They did, but they did. Yeah, they absolutely did because they kind of violated their own honor, and they had they were meant meant to kind of get on this the, the ready and steady path to something better. I don't know enough about it to say anything. I just it. it It was it was an institution that's now lapsed, but we do have drug courts now. And I guess they're a species of the same thing. But let's move on to Jenny's story and your story. Can you tell us the story of Jenny and your attempt to save her?
1: Sure, sure. And and, you know, I'll just start off by saying that there's maybe it's a mother and daughter's story, as I mentioned before. And there's maybe no worse feeling than having failed in the primary responsibility of every mother and every parent, which is to protect your child. And I think this, and this still bothers me, this is how so many parents in our country feel. Uh, There's no worse feeling. And in my case, I watched my daughter uh, fall from a place of academic achievement, excellence in music, dance and theater, to um, the abyss of PTSD, TBI, suicidality, cutting, and addiction to all kinds of drugs, including heroin and OxyContin. And uh, as a parent, staying up all night, Terrified of receiving the devastating phone call of even, God forbid, never finding my daughter again. Going out to look for her, rescue her on my own, with or without the police or private detectives at all times of the day or night, not knowing how to stop it because there really was no help. And this went on for years. Uh, it all began um, after I graduated from law school. My mother developed Alzheimer's disease. And this is a case that many people in my generation find ourselves in where you're caring for children and your spouse and oftentimes an aging parent who may be ill. And in my case, I had no extended family and there were many costs attendant to her good care. So I accepted full-time employment at a very competitive Manhattan law firm. Uh, This started when Jenny was about three. I was working some 16 hours a day, at least six days out of the week. And my husband, who was a psychoanalyst, worked these hours as well. Uh, So what happened to Jenny, which I think has happened to so many children in our society where both parents now have to work two jobs and some parents have to work double jobs. So no one's minding the children except uh, unqualified caregivers. Jenny was left in the hands of uh, two soulless nannies who sexually molested her. And she acutely felt my absence and acutely felt my husband's absence. She felt as if she had no one to turn to and later said that she couldn't even tell us about the sexual abuse until years later because she believed that she was powerless and no one would believe her and we were never there. So the abusers had all the power. She was also regularly bullied psychologically and emotionally and physically in her Manhattan private grammar school. Then uh, at the tender age of 11, My husband died in her arms of a massive heart attack on Christmas Eve. And that was devastating, a devastating trauma. And at the age of 13, she was hit by a New York City taxi, thrown 30 feet into the air and went in and out of six comas and emerged with severe PTSD, TBI suicidality and drug addiction and after her accident she developed a very serious alcohol and cocaine habit she started hanging out with the bloods which is an extremely dangerous gang in new york city she was engaging in all kinds of perilous behaviors as is typical of someone with ptsd and tbi because jenny ultimately admitted to me sorry i'm sorry that all the traumas she had been through and the bullying she had been subjected to combined with my absence as a mother for most of her life and with no extended family, had made her feel unwanted, rejected, unloved, unequal, lost, and suicidal. This was a terrible force to try to conquer. It almost had a life of its own. The pattern continued for the following nine years, ultimately to the use of heroin, Oxycontin, Valium, Xanax, Ecstasy, ketamine, clonopin, ambient episodes of dissociation, uh, cutting, dropping out of a window 25 feet above the ground, and somehow, thank you God, surviving the perils of the racine, which is rife with the use of hallucinogens, MDMA, and all kinds of physical and personal endangerments, uh, serious medical conditions that required hospital treatment, and her being abducted and first stage human trafficked. Her journey became more and more alarming, as the untreated and unhealed trauma led to ever increasing numbers of more severe traumas, and that's what happens with trauma—it's compounded.
0: That's what happens. Yes.
1: Yeah, that's what happens, and then it only
0: goes—it only goes one way.
1: <laughs> it only goes one way unless there is some yeah. kind of uh, divine intervention. Almost something has to something has to stop it something has to stop it and it it can be through a person or it can be through insight. So, but something has to stop it. And, Then infuriatingly, these experiences were interspersed with numerous stints at some very expensive mental health care rehab facilities, which were neglectful and full of abuses that a lot of people don't know about, including rape, other forms of physical assault by patients and staff, drug use, drug dealing, drug overdosing, failure to follow basic medical protocols. Uh, The list could go on and on. Um, And what, what I found out and what Jenny found out as well is that most of the facilities are part of what I call a feckless mental health care rehab system that runs with the sole purpose, perpetuating its self-existence and its financial profit. It has a 95% recidivism rate. It lacks federal standards. It's using a failed paradigm of the major misdiagnosing of patients with genetic neurological disorders, OCD, ADHD, uh, bipolar, borderline, they Then they place these patients in canned group lectures and give them pills, which may help relieve the symptoms of some people struggling with acute anxiety. And I do believe the first rule of medicine is to clamp the bleeding. But for most cases, this is not a long-term cure. And some of these medications that they're giving teenagers and other young people, even younger than teenagers, uh, are actually antipsychotics. And we don't have any real studies as to long-term effects on a developing brain or body organs. And then, unless one is paying out of pocket, insurance will kick the patient out in three to five days in a psychiatric facility or two weeks in a rehab. So, only the super wealthy can afford the $40,000 to $70,000 per month for a one year to 18 month stay, which was the classical paradigm. The classical paradigm in addiction, the 80s and 90s, was she would go in for 18 months. And when people came out, they were pretty much cured. And the same thing, this was the same paradigm for mental health care. You could go into prominent facilities, let's say in Westchester County. And you would receive one-on-one psychodynamic psychotherapy three times a week to discuss the underlying causes of your addiction and your mental affliction. And by the time people were released, they were pretty much cured. But this is no longer because the quick in-and-out stays serve the insurance companies. They make money that way. The the peddling of the pills uh, makes profits for the pharmaceutical companies. And all the returned customers with a 95% recidivism rate makes a lot of money for the facilities. So in this paradigm, there's a complete absence of one-on-one psychodynamic psychotherapy with therapists who should be skilled in the treatment of trauma, sexual abuse, and PTSD. Because if these patients could discuss the underlying causes of their addictions and mental suffering and work through their traumas in an empathic and compassionate way, they might experience a cure. And I believe we need a psychotherapy that's combined with altruistic love as a basis for therapeutic treatment, which I've written about in Saving Jenny. And then also at almost none of these places is spirituality ever offered as a possible source of strength love, hope, and cure, despite all of the writings by people like Thomas McCormick at the University of Washington, who says we have to bring spirit, the spiritual beliefs of patients into the healing process. Dr. Abraham Verghese and Nancy Coover Anderson, outstanding physician and psychotherapist who both say the same thing, that we have to infuse spirituality into medical and mental health care, that it's absolutely vital. Yet at none of these places is it ever offered. And then It was going from one failed admission to the other. And what happens, Marshall, is you work up the expectations and the hopes for help and improvement every place you go, both Jenny and myself, but only to be met with hurt and failure again. And then that further exacerbated Jenny's condition and those of her friends, because it wears out trust and hope and tolerance. And uh, what happened was I was desperate. I really didn't think Jenny was going to make it. And I went, I had been an agnostic. My father had been an atheist. I was sent to Catholic school for discipline in quotes, you know. <laughs> I'm not quite sure it worked. It may have to a certain extent. Uh, but I was, uh, you know, an agnostic who said, so oh, I was raised to believe that religion was the open move of masses, all this sort of thing. This was sort of supposedly made you intellectual. But I went crashing to my knees, crashing to my knees. And I said, God, please, just save her life. Please save my daughter. Help her. I beg you. And I prayed and I prayed. And in that moment, things started to turn around. Jacqueline, Jenny had any number of of miraculous healings. Uh, Good Samaritans would appear out of nowhere. There was a time when she had taken just an inordinate amount of drugs that even the, the detectives who found her said they were amazed that she survived. Thank you God she did. And I had been praying with all of my heart, mind, and soul that that she would recover. Uh, just so many instances where prayer seemed to have intervened and prevented uh, Jenny from suffering disasters. And there are many studies that I've cited in the book that attest to the the curative physical power of prayer, where they studied 2,000 people in California over the course of five years and found out that those who attended regular religious service had a 36% less prob- lower probability of dying. Uh, there were studies conducted on cardiac patients in San Francisco and in, uh, in Wales, where they found that people who were prayed for, who didn't even know that they were being prayed for, recovered much more quickly and with less complications and needing much fewer medications. Uh, the, the, uh, the head of the study in Wales called the results actually uh, staggering. So it, prayer is, is, is very effective. Uh, other things happened. Uh, everything started to improve. Jenny, Jenny started to have more loving relationships in her life. Her relationship with me greatly improved and her hardcore drug use abated. And I discovered that when I pray for others with compassion, that the creator hears us. Um,
0: if you don't mind, I want to go back to uh, kind of the beginning of Jenny's story, because one of the things I found uh, f- fascinating and revealing, and I think the listeners will as well, is the context in which she started to use drugs, uh, not so much the personal context, but the social context. And this links uh, well with what you were saying about a kind of transformation of the culture. Uh it, it seemed, and I, and I and I saw this when I went to college in the '80s, because uh, I, I went to a I went to a school where there were a lot of people that were from private schools back east, and so on and so forth. But it was the the kind of uh, the accessibility of drugs, hard drugs, and also the acceptance of hard drugs, and it just seemed like what all the cool kids were doing. Um, and it seems in her context, and this is in Manhattan. That they were both readily available and accepted. Is that is that right?
1: In some ways, yes, and in some ways, no. Um, Jenny was actually ostracized uh, by the mothers and other students in her schools once they discovered that she was using drugs. However, there was there it, they were easy to find. There were lots of parties that were taking place in Manhattan where older grad students at certain universities would have parties in Brooklyn and invite, uh, the younger girls to attend them. All sorts of crazy things went on. It was, it was your children. There were, there were children who, um, usually the children who felt marginalized in some way, who ended up becoming involved in drugs. They were, uh, sometimes, um, the son who was gay, sometimes the girl who wasn't as pretty or the girl who was somehow more vulnerable, the child who wasn't as favored, the person who was bullied in school. Um, rarely was it the student who was the popular one or the valued one. It was usually the one who was somehow more fragile, more vulnerable with parents that weren't really there for them or couldn't be who were working such hours that they that they weren't around and yes through facebook as it developed at that time and through the internet they could get a hold of anyone and anything that was out there and they pretty much did and it was really the eruption of the internet in uh after 2000 that made uh was also part of why, uh, the drug epidemic exploded because all of a sudden everything was at your fingertips and exciting you. And, and there were clickbaits, and, you know, young girls were encouraged to send sexually exploitive pictures of themselves over the internet. And now we have the tide pod challenges. Whereas one journal, well, yeah, as one journalist said, why take your doctor prescribed meds when you can negotiate death on your own terms? Um, we have Pornhub over the last five years with 23 billion clicks in 2016. So I would say it was really uh, the rise of the internet also that fueled this. And the, the, the internet really exploded at the same time that the family really imploded even more. And parents were much less available to their children, but children have to attach to something. So they attach to their similarly uh, distressed peers who then participate in all of these um, unhealthy and immoral activities on the internet. They don't know any better because they're trying to fill a void. They're trying to fill the God-shaped hole. They're trying to fill the lack of parental attachment, and they're attaching on to the only things that are there. Unfortunately, they're uh, extremely unhealthy and harmful.
0: Yeah. I mean, my experience was I came from Kansas, and, and granted, Kansas is not like every place else. My parents weren't particularly strict. In fact, they were heavy drinkers or alcoholics themselves. But I went to this Tony liberal arts college, very great place. I like it very much. Um, but what I got there, what I found was, is that the but many of the students there, they'd come from big cities like Chicago, New York. To them, taking drugs was just something you did. And, and I remember reading before I, I, <clears throat> I remember reading when I was a junior in high school about people that did LSD. And I thought, oh, wasn't that like a sixties thing? And then I got to college and it turned out that everybody who went there did LSD. And pretty much everything else. And it was just broadly accepted. And it was kind of culture shock for me. I did them too. I admit it, but I wanted to fit in with everyone. And I suppose I was very insecure at the time, but it was just the kind of pervasiveness of it and the acceptance of it. It was just shocking to me. Uh, Again, I glommed right onto it, but I I think it did mark a particular shift.
1: Well, may I ask you, Marshall, these these, these, uh, peers who did use drugs were these the type that just parted with it and survived went on to grad school and were okie dokie because what we so you do have that crowd who can use drugs and not uh become addicted and completely dependent and then end up using more drugs and worse drugs and then maybe not wake up one day because what i'm seeing now and i knew those party people too um i wasn't one of them but i knew them uh is that there's an underlying suicidality now that's accompanying uh, drug use, and I did you see that in those students at the time, or was this really more of a party thing?
0: It was mostly a party thing, and most of them a- aged out of it. I didn't really age out of it. I took it all the way to the bottom. But uh, one of them killed the, himself, uh, a, a dear friend of mine, even in college. Um, uh, and and some of them, yeah, I, I and some of them, I, I think they live kind of marginally now and out of touch with a lot of them. But I guess the point I'm trying to make is, is that. Uh, over that period between the end of World War II and 1985, we're talking about here, something really shifted in our attitude toward mind altering substances and their acceptance. It was just, it, it was incredible to me to see. Now, drinking was widely accepted when I was growing up. Everybody drank all the time. One for the road really meant one for the road. Like my mom would make a drink for somebody and they'd take it in the car. Uh, but the idea that you would like do hard drugs, that was just off the table because drugs were. Uh, Well, they weren't for my sort of people, Um, and also they just weren't for people because they were bad for you. But there was no sense of the danger of these things. They were just something you did because they were kind of fun and sort of necessary in a way. That's something that I really felt when I got to college was, oh, here it is, and this is what the in crowd does now, and it's everywhere. And you can get them, and you should do them because they're mind-expanding or some other sort of bullshit that they feed you. <laughs> Pardon my French.
1: Right. No, but, no, you're absolutely but, right uh, because it was considered cool. You had Timothy Leary, and it it all happened. You're right about the timing. It started at the time, as we were talking going back to the 60s, when you're really taking God out of the culture. You have the assassinations of Medgar Evers, John F. Kennedy, Malcolm X, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., and Robert F. Kennedy. And at the same time, you have the Vietnam War. And I think this created uh, a kind of what I would call a societal mental fracturing. And so it's not surprising that at the same time that you don't have a belief in a higher power, with, which provides a shattered public psyche with some comfort, solace and resilience and wholeness, that you would have people turning to drugs.
0: Yeah and and I think also that it was a profound cynicism that I recognize among my peers and I think still exists today I asked my students the other day whether they were uh, had any kind of higher values or anything like that and and you know they all came up with sort of banal things like I want to help people <laughs> and that's good I like that but I said are you part of any more general project. And they couldn't identify anything. And then, you know, I would say, well, but what about the American project? Life, liberty, the pursuit of yes, happiness? Yes, exactly. Kind of and they, and, you know, they didn't, they didn't recognize that at all. They were very cynical about that. And I said, but, you know, what about, uh, you know, I don't know, the Civil War? We, we did, you know, Americans enslaved other Americans, but then we sacrificed 600,000 lives to end slavery. Or what about World War II? You know, defeat the Nazis. What about, you know, defeating communism? And they just... Very cynical about all these things. They just said, "Ah, oh, that was some sort of bullshit." We did that for our own, you know, benefit. And I, I was astounded when I heard it because it's not true. But they really did feel this. And I should also say, among my students, I always ask them this, and you know, I asked them if they were churched. They don't know what churched means.
1: Well, well, exactly. <laughs> I mean, exactly. Of course, they don't. They probably all went to Google it immediately if they were intellectually. Uh... Yeah. Is, you know uh, but, yeah. but this goes back to our educational system, and really education is culture. and I think it was um, Theodore Roosevelt who said to educate a man in mind and not in morals is to educate a, a menace to society. Uh, And we have David Brooks, who wrote an article back in 2011 in the New York Times, uh, talked about the lack of a concept of morality among youth, which is what you're talking about. And he he, uh, recounted the findings of a Notre Dame research team that were shocked at discovering the almost complete absence of moral thinking among the young people they interviewed. And I think up until the 60s, we taught character in the schools as a part of history. and I think we need to return to a teaching of character in the schools, virtue, ethics, civics, morality, and and human values. And by hu- human values, we mean the virtues, love, compassion, generosity, faith, hope, charity. Uh, we need to restore moral thinking to our culture.
0: Yeah. As somebody who's taught in universities for a long time, that does not happen.
1: <laughs> I can it doesn't happen. Does it, not it, it not doesn't happen. It doesn't
0: happen. In, in, not even close. Well,
1: <laughs> and, and, and I would say even with, I mean, in Catholic school, they asked us to perform a um, examination of conscience every evening. I think it was the historian, the this early church scholar origin who said that conscience is the seat of justice. I think it's very true. Um, uh, also, uh, you know, we need to. Our academic programs are are much less than rigorous. We need to really be teaching history, the rise and fall of empires, the battle between good and evil, uh, how American democracy was forged, and how extraordinary, despite all of its flaws, it is. And human nature and critical thinking. We need to to revise our entire educational system. I think this would help things enormously. Yeah.
0: yeah. I teach a class on human nature, actually. and I, I, Do you? And I do, yeah. And, uh, the, uh, it's, it's been a qu- quite an amazing experience because most of them think there isn't a human nature and that it's just people are entirely malleable and so on and so forth. The idea of teaching morals or anything right from wrong, essentially what, what, what is taught these days is that, well, I, I won't put too fine a point on it, is that America is bad
1: <laughs> <laughs> right.
0: and let's list the ways and uh i you know I, that, and, and that, then
1: i would ask them where else would you like to live
0: yeah, right, exactly and then I'm like, exactly you, would you li- like to have live? you ever lived overseas no right <laughs> well how right. do you know right. then you have any idea no but i know america is bad and, and so, would you like
1: to look at the history of the world and how people yeah. treated uh each other back then and
0: where and when yeah, and I think there's a curiosity about you mentioned religion about religion, but there's just the complete ignorance of it, and not it's not disdain for it exactly. It's just a, a, a misunderstanding of of what it could possibly be because there's no experience with it. They don't have, and I didn't really either. I was raised a Lutheran, but not much of a Lutheran, and I think I went to some bake sales, and that was it. But once I got into AA, and I, I started to understand what spirituality actually means, and I can talk about that but it was a very different experience than the one that I got growing up thinking that only <clears throat> religious people were kind of dumb and only atheists really had the true uh, had the truth in their hands uh so yeah I think it's a lot of uh, just a tremendous amount of there's curiosity but there's just tremendous ignorance about what it is and n- n- nobody would think for a second well I don't not nobody I mean I suspect in Kansas they would but um nobody thinks of going to talk to their rabbi or Preacher or priest about their troubles anymore. <laughs> that's not where anybody goes.
1: Well, that's, that's uh, another point, and um, about what's happened to the culture and the, the Catholic Church, and as one who was raised a Catholic, or disciplined, as I said, but nonetheless went through through Catholic training. Um, there used to be some goodly priests in the church with whom one could speak, but um, the church, it looks, was uh, infiltrated and ruined, and it became part of the general culture. And uh, rather, rather than um, be the bastion of the godly supernatural, it uh, just lay down with the hedonistic natural and uh so so where do where do these young people turn for this kind of um heartfelt selfless uh, altruistic love that true representatives of faith used to be able to impart to give one hope and guidance as to what constituted a good and a right life.
0: I mean, I'll I'll tell you my own personal experience, and I can only speak to that, is the first time I ever encountered those things, that kind of altruistic love, and a kind of set of rules which were above any person and given by some other authority, was in, in fact, AA meetings, uh, where people speak honestly about themselves. And I'm I'm not going to, you know, pound my fist and tell everyone to go to AA. It's for whoever wants it, but uh it, i i did see it there and and i saw people who were genuinely interested in me and interested enough to spend an hour every day with me in kind of meditation about our foibles addictions and problems and lacks and um you know the extent to which we weren't living in an upright way and just the yeah you know, just the the moral direction that's involved in that was extraordinarily useful to me and i took great comfort in it and I mean, I I, I haven't had a drink since my first AA meeting. Again, I'm not saying AA is for everybody or anything like that, but uh, it it, it proved to be a kind of quasi-religious, I guess I would call it, uh, context in which uh, I did receive a lot of uh, very good feeling and good guidance from people who did not know me from Adam. (laughs)
1: <laughs> well, I, I i think I think you're very right to bring this up, Marshall. Because I know a lot of people who have been saved by AA. Jenny has herself has been saved by people who've been saved by AA. I know young people who go to the young people's AA meetings and have since they were fifteen, and now they're thirty and in social work school, and they want to give back and help other people as they themselves were helped. And they did find that altruistic love and guidance in AA. And I think it's wonderful. AA has saved hundreds of thousands, if not millions of lives. It doesn't ask for payment. It's pure in that regard. And that's what altruistic love is. It's pure.
0: Yeah. I I often respond to people who say, they don't say it so much anymore, that AA is a cult. I would say that it's the worst cult of all time because you don't have to go.
1: <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yes, it's a
0: really inferior cult. Right. So it's a bad one. So but yeah, I mean there are lots of paths to recovery and and some people recover spontaneously. I think most people age out of drug use, but for that percentage that doesn't things like a are extraordinarily valuable. But I did want you to speak a little bit more about um really the kind of lack of serious psychological help both in uh Recovery centers and places like this for people with uh, addiction problems. It's 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 truly astounding uh, that we don't have in place a system to help these thousands of people.
1: Well, that's true. And um, is it? Would this be a good time for me to discuss the overall solutions? The conduct the yeah, conduct of therapy is part of that, and I will spend some yeah, time I would on love that. You talk yeah. About that. Yeah, yeah. Do that. yeah and, 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 and I'd like if I could, because I think it's a wonderful quote, start off by quoting de Tocqueville, Alexis de Tocqueville. And
0: you can never do wrong by <laughs> quoting Alexis de Tocqueville.
1: <laughs> I have my, my, my dog-eaten copy of Democracy in America next to me yeah, at all times. Right. Uh, he he yeah. stated, if society is tranquil, it is not because of its strength and its well-being, but because it fears its weaknesses and its infirmities. Everybody feels the evil but no one has courage or energy enough to seek the cure. And I think this is how most people feel about the drug opioid suicide epidemic, but we have to seek the cure because it's our moral duty and we and there, there are cures. And the cures, the solutions exist in terms of attacking the drug problem per se, in terms of political, social, economic reforms, and then in terms of reconstituting ourselves, restoring our own souls and our own free will as individuals in our infusion of love, one-on-one, one-to-another, in psychotherapy and in our families. And and I can go through that. But in terms of overall approach, and I think this this shows the lack of seriousness with which the government is approaching the problem, all the positive congressional talk notwithstanding. The recent legislation adopted by Congress Provided for a paltry 6 to $8 billion over the next two years to come to combat this epidemic. Whereas the allocation to combat HIV AIDS is approximately $100 billion over the next five years. And we need at least this much to f- fight this plague, especially. And people say, well, where are you going to get the money? Well, let's look at the costs. The costs of drug addiction alone, not including the suicidality of it in the United States is $1 trillion dollars a year 1 trillion now if this were the incursion of a killer virus like ebola our government would absolutely find a way to halt its influx and its spread discover a cure and develop a vaccine against it and we have to demand that the drug suicide epidemic is attacked in the exact same way there's no reason why it should not be it has to be it's not being taken seriously and the first thing to do is to stop the supply of drugs and we do this by crushing the importation, marketing, and distribution of all lethal substances, including but not limited to fentanyl, carfentanyl, heroin, cocaine, ketamine, methamphetamine, and MDMA, especially by drug lords and cartels. Then we have to freeze the manufacture of these poisons at their source and make it clear to all foreign nations that we will not tolerate their production and export to the United States. And then in addition to that, we have to rigorously pursue a policy of transparency, accountability, investigations, and legal action with respect to the pharmaceutical companies, the medical practitioners, the government representatives, and the healthcare facilities who've been involved in the pushing of OxyContin and any other similar prescription medications. Secondly, we need effective emergency intervention techniques to prevent opioid overdose. And I believe in this regard, we need the national over-the-counter availability of naloxone and that naloxone which will, which will prevent overdose when it's administered to the patient. Naloxone should be carried in all schools, libraries, inpatient and outpatient rehabs, psychiatric facilities and hospitals and halfway houses. And amazingly enough, it's not. And people have died because of the non-availability of naloxone in these facilities. It should also be at fire stations, police stations, churches, mosques, synagogues, and temples. And then also in terms of effective emergency intervention, we need Community treatment referral stations open 24-7, 365 days a year, where people suffering with addiction and mental distress are provided with instant help and then sent to therapeutic establishments. And they had such places in New Hampshire, where they had these referral stations at, uh, at firehouses. And this was very, very helpful. Uh, then, of course, we have the issue of consumption. And this is our big, just as big a problem as a supply. We have to demand that the federal government develops a truly successful dual diagnosis paradigm, essentially a cure with a less than 15% recidivism rate. We've made tremendous inroads with AIDS. People are living for decades with the disease. We should, there's no reason why the drug suicide epidemic cannot be approached also with a very rigorous protocol. And this protocol should include spirituality, as we discussed there should be free access to high caliber inpatient and subsequent halfway house and outpatient treatment and recovery regimes. And they should keep patients for, and this access should be free. And they should keep patients for significant terms, allowing them to achieve valid and permanent healing. Also, we have to eliminate any shaming in the culture directed against people suffering with drug addiction or mental affliction. And as such, I've advocated in, in, um, in previous articles that we memorialize those who've died in this epidemic. And it's been 700,000 souls in the last 20 years by erecting walls of voices in our communities, similar to the AIDS quilt, similar to the Vietnam uh, veteran memorial wall where we honor those who've died. And, and they're no longer shame that this is out in the open families can grieve. And this serves as a reminder to never let this happen again. So this will be a reminder that the government can't ignore and, uh, Will prevent further people from dying, and we
0: should. Mm-hmm. What, what do you th- let me let me ask this? What, what do you think explains the absence of such a response by by essentially politicians and I don't know the federal government or the bureaucracy or I, I, it just doesn't seem to me that it's being taken terribly seriously by uh, anyone running for office or anyone who has their uh, sort of hands on one of the levers of power. There's there's no I don't know, a uh, great society program to prevent drug uh, abuse, addiction, and death. What, what explains that? I don't really know. That's an open question. I don't know.
1: I... Well, it, it's a very interesting question. Uh, and uh, there, there are a couple of possibilities. Uh, one is that perhaps it's that uh, the mothers and fathers and addicts of people suffering from addiction and mental affliction have not organized themselves into um, a cohesive uh, voting block. Now, if they were a, a voting block and united as a voting block, then the politicians would have to listen to them. Also, there's a lot of money being made by big pharma, by the facilities, uh, by lots of people in keeping people sick. Uh, so that that doesn't exist with the AIDS epidemic, but it does exist with the opioid suicide epidemic. Uh, then it could, it's also a byproduct of the immorality in the culture that we just don't have the moral fiber to care enough to, to, to enact the reforms that, that need to be enacted. And, all, and also, uh, <laughs> there are two more aspects, which I would name. One is that throughout history in looking at human nature, there's been the unconscious um, urge to human sacrifice where we take certain groups of people and make them the scapegoats and allow them to be sacrificed. Uh, It's an unconscious uh, urge in humanity and not a very pretty one. And then there's the fact that uh, we wrongly judge people with addiction as indulging in a vice and a corrupt lifestyle, when the truth is that they have very little choice, that these are people who've been tormented by substance-adduced abuse disorder, who are suffering oftentimes from multiple devastating traumas and losses since an early age, and frequently also socioeconomic deprivation. Um, In the cases of young women, often sexual abuse. In the case of young men, uh, beatings and abandonment. They are often in unendurable emotional and mental pain, feel despair, and use drugs to self-medicate, often as the last stop before suicide. So, and then, The tragedy and the diabolical irony of it is, is that the drugs disrupt the normal neurotransmission and reception, resulting in a a disease of of physical and psychic enslavement that cannot be blocked easily at will. And this makes overdose all the more likely because it hooks into the receptors. So all of this needs to be understood. And uh, I think all of these forces, there's money to be made by keeping keeping people sick. There isn't money to be making to be made by keep, by keeping people sick who suffer from AIDS or other diseases.
0: Well, one thing I would add to that, a very good catalog, is uh, I think that American culture, and I kind of think this started in the 60s, has taken individualism to an extent that is uh, kind of absurd. Because I, although nobody would ever, no right-thinking person, I think, would, claim, would say, uh, would avow libertarianism. We're all kind of closet libertarians. And so <clears throat> if you want to go kill yourself with drugs, people will say, they won't say it, but then you should go kill yourself with drugs. And uh, this is a profoundly individualistic thing to say, because you're not thinking of the collective in any way. And I, and the way in which the people that I deal with, sponsees and such, are treated uh, is, is, I think, reflective of that uh, almost libertarian, really incredibly individualistic ethic, because there's no collective response to it, or or even sense that there should be. I, again, I'm, I'm sorry to go on because you're being interviewed, not me. But
1: no, no, I appreciate this. You know, like, I appreciate like, this. Like I thank I, you for it.
0: When I, when I when I deal with people with addiction problems, and and the AA groups I go to, they also have heroin addicts and people who are meth addicts, and let's say it, there are marijuana addicts as well, and a lot of them. Um that they, as you say, kind of go from one uh, ineffective treatment to another. It's just an endless kind of chain of ineffective treatments. And that's why I said in the pre-interview, we talked about this. Detox is called a spin cycle, right? you It's a spin dry. You're going to go get dry. It's not going to do you any good. It might, you know, you'll get something to eat. You'll get clean. And then you go out and you do it again. And, you know, I, I know people that have been to dozens and dozens of detoxes. <laughs> this is not an effective way really to help people. But there's not any sense that anything more i think should be done and i i personally find this kind of remarkable and it's just the lack it's a failure to invest in the resources which are necessary there are ways to do this they are i guess by some people's lights um i guess in many ways not totally consistent with american political values based on individualism but they they are effective and uh but we don't want to go there anymore um you know, I, I well, I could give lots of anecdotes about this, but uh, it really is uh, a sense that if they want to go kill themselves, they should be able to go kill themselves, and it's not our problem, but it is our problem.
1: <laughs> well, just, yeah. yes, it, it is, it is our problem because uh, drug addiction and suicidality are contagious, particularly among youth. I can cite so many cases of copied cat suicide in the area in which I live where young boys have thrown themselves on the train tracks within two weeks of one another going to the same prep school uh and multiply this by by many many other uh incidences where they feel that uh People watching their friends succumb to suicide, particularly young people, let's say between the ages of of 14 and 25, feel that they're somehow marked. And it's also overwhelming and there's survivor's guilt and somehow it seems that they did it. I should do it, too. And I think going back to the individualism you mentioned, uh, Marshall, and, 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 and Tocqueville actually pointed that out as, as one of the problems. Oh, in yeah. Oh, he, was,
0: he was big on that. Yeah.
1: Yeah. That it gets carried too far and then causes a lot of trouble. Uh, we also have, I think, maybe a carryover of the blame the victim society, which is a carryover from late 19th century century social Darwinism. Uh, survival of the fittest. Well, uh, if you're not tough enough, that's your problem. And you're right. People take the attitude. I don't use drugs. So why do you? I open the book with a story of a woman and I'm telling her she's a neighbor about this young boy who was so abandoned by his parents and taken advantage of by his peers who overdosed. And she said to me, well, nobody put the drugs in his hands, did they? And, and so the attitude is, I don't use drugs, so why should you? But you haven't walked in their moccasins. You haven't been through the traumas and the horrors they've been through. You don't know what they're struggling with. And, and this is what causes people to, to uh, become substance abuse dependent and suicidal. But yes, it's, a lot of people will view uh, people who are mentally afflicted or, or suffering with drug addiction as weak-willed. He got what he deserved. Nobody made him do it. And this is just completely, it's just a lie. It has nothing to do with the will. It's a, it's a disease. It's a lie.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, I think one thing that AA is very good about, and it's a bit of wisdom uh, that I, I quite accept, is AA is very clear that AA is about, uh, it's, it is is about stopping using and drinking, but really that's kind of a prerequisite for The AA program itself, you come into the rooms, you, before you started drinking and using, you had some sort of problem. There was a hole in you. That's right. And uh, I don't know how that hole got there, but you got to recognize that the drugs and alcohol are a symptom as much as they are a cause. There's something in you that needs to be fixed in order for you to be, it's a stop. And this is something that really came very clear to me in my long journey through AA. So there was something wrong with me and, and it, it, and my use of drugs and alcohol was a symptom of that problem. And I needed to identify that problem and somehow fix it. And there are lots of ways to do this. You don't have to go to AA to fix it, but they, they really are kind of a symptom of a problem not a problem because who doesn't really know that drugs are bad for you I, I've not met that person no, that's right. right That's right I, I don't know anybody who says yeah drugs they're really good for you nobody know nobody thinks that and and so obviously using them as a risky endeavor is something you're doing to solve some problem that you have, some pre-existing problem. And that's really what AA is focused on is you know, that complete spiritual transformation that they talk about. I don't know if I've achieved it, but I, I certainly work on it a lot. I wanna, we, we've really used up a lot of your time. or taken up a lot of your time, and I, I appreciate it so much. And I think the book is very important. Um, but I do want to ask you, how is Jenny today before we close?
1: Sure. Well, Jenny, uh, Jenny today is still dealing with some anxieties And she's in therapy, just as so many people in our society are suffering from anxiety and are in therapy for this reason. But although she's working through what I would call post-addiction challenges, I'd say overall her story is one of um, deliverance, great personal transformation, and with God's help, new life found Our relationship has improved. She is in a loving relationship. Uh, She's going to school. Uh, She sees a future for herself. Uh, So this has has been a a great transformation for which I'm deeply grateful.
0: That was my interview with Vivian Percy about her book, Saving Jenny, Rescuing Our Youth from America's Opioid and Suicide Epidemic. I'm Marshall Poe, the editor-in-chief of the New Books Network, and I want to thank you for listening to this interview, and I hope that you enjoyed it.